0: You are listening to Filthy Armenian Adventures.
1: There's something on my mind.
0: Want somebody
1: please, please tell me what's wrong.
0: Somewhere in between L.A. and New York City, somewhere between the cold icy grip of the Atlantic and the deep eternal blue Pacific with f- old friend of the pod, OG friend of the filthy Armenian adventures, Enterprise, uh, Mr. Adam Lehrer. Adam, it how's is it going?
1: great to be back.
0: Great Author, to be back. Author most recently of Safety Propaganda, Conceptual Manifesto for Psychological Warfare, um, which is a... Safety Propaganda is also the name of Adam's long-running Substack uh, newsletter, um, and I believe this was adapted from one of his... from from a long... Uh, series of long posts on the newsletter. Adam was first on this show for, uh, way back in early 2022, uh, where we went, when we went out to Chinatown in New York and it's the Addicted to Art episode of Chinatown. And he's been on since in Dime Square and various other guises. Um, so I'm really excited to have him back to talk about this book. And it's many, it's many different, uh, characters and ideas. Uh, the book is basically, um, a, a brief entry on 200 different artistic figures, movements, moments, concepts that basically constitute Adam's idea of art that kicks Safety ass. Safety
1: propaganda. Safety yeah. propaganda.
0: <laughs> uh, a a trans you know, various levels of transgressive energy. Uh, they range from all across the map from, you know, the most, the kind of, the, the more iconic things like Robert Johnson's Deal with the Devil, Howlin' Wolf's voice, both very, both recurring themes in in my world, certainly. Also, yeah. something we have to talk about now because she just left us, Tina Turner, and Tina Turner's R.I.P. Yes. Yeah, R.I.P. Tina day. Turner. We
1: lost. Uh, we lost two great artists in the same day today.
0: That's right. We also lost uh, Kenneth, K- Kenneth, Kenneth Danger. Anger. Anger. Sorry, I said danger. Same thing. Same thing. I guess. Um, Tina Turner, I don't know how, I've talked about Tina Turner quite frequently on the show because uh, Tina Turner had a huge impact on me. The closest I've ever had to a diva relationship is with Tina Turner. I saw her yeah. in her last performance uh, in, uh, in of her last tour at the Anaheim Pond back in 2001. Now it's called the Honda Center. Uh, I liked it better yeah. when it was called the Anaheim Pond. And, she was she was someone who I also performed as in a in a very winning uh, little bit uh, at the at my senior year high school media academy awards show at the Mark Taper Auditorium. Um, I I performed my own choreographed version of Private Dancer, and as Tina Turner, in every sense, including skin color, and. It was a big hit, and it was a very meaningful moment in my life. And I also went on to my my call my safety my my uh, safety propaganda column at 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 my at UC Santa Barbara's college yeah, newspaper. Yeah, told
1: me about that.
0: Right. It's called Private Dancer. And when I went to Tommy's Chili Burger just now to eat something before this, they were playing yeah. Private Dancer. It just started playing when oh, I walked in.
1: Amazing.
0: So yeah, she meant you know, a lot I've, to me.
1: Um, Yeah, there was a period of time, I would say mid 2010s or so, when I got really sort of embarrassed by myself and like uh, the deep history and knowledge I have about like so many avant garde music movements and like being such a corny metalhead and all this shit just started to seem like I was getting too old for it. I've since kind of disregarded this and just gone back reverted to my worst form. But um, there was, <laughs> there was a nevertheless, like a time when I uh, was kind of only trying to listen to older rock and roll and soul music and um, especially certain records. Like I loved uh, Aretha Franklin's um, Spirit in the Dark, but just that record, like I don't like anything outside of it, but she really fucking nails it on, or her producers nail it on that album.
0: I woke up to uh, that album for piano about a while. Yeah, I woke up. I I would wake up to the Spirit in the Dark album in high school uh, for like maybe a whole year. That was my CD alarm. Um, I had that in the CD player. That was my alarm, and I would wake up to it. She also has a. I love that. That's my favorite album as well, and it is by far the best thing she's done. Uh, yeah. And and there's also a great duet of her live with Ray Charles singing the song Spirit of the Dark.
1: Oh yeah, I saw that. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I loved that. I loved um, at least the B side of Inner Visions. I mean, Sly Stone I got heavily into for a while, but um, the last kind of thing I went back to was Aretha, or sorry, Tina and Ike, Mm -hmm. and um, because I never really listened to Tina's uh, solo stuff, you know. But um, there was just something. I saw the movie on TV. I think with Angela Bassett. And it's sort of this, like, it's kind of corny, but it's still kind of entertaining. Lawrence Fishburne plays Ike, and Angela Bassett is Tina. And I was like, I have to listen to this. You know, like, what is it like to make these elegant, perfectly structured, beautiful pop songs amidst all this sort of violence and chaos? And the best part about Ike and Tina, I think, Is that when you fucking listen to it, maybe we're projecting this now in retrospect, now that we kind of know the full extent of like how fucked up their relationship it was, but I kind of don't think so. I mean, on the fucking Fool in Love track, and and Tina's just kind of like screaming, like it's not a traditional form of like diva singing, she's like screaming her fucking head off, like she sounds enraged. And I love the way that that their partnership, it really sort of uh, works as great art because they they're exploring that sort of boundary of when love feels like hate and vice versa, you know, because I think in love there's always this sort of like flash of contempt and like rage and anger. And that's sort of the thing that charges you up. That's sort of what romance kind of is. And And yeah, you can absolutely hear it in that music. Um, Yeah, yeah.
0: there's no there's a whole you know uh, there there is no doubt a a whole kind of uh, era and a way of thinking and an ideological shift that Tina Turner's career stands for and also symbolizes. Which because when I was growing up, I remember this specifically. Like all the women of my household. Uh, that I knew they had a very Oprah Winfrey kind of uh, approach to the Tina Turner situation. They saw her as this victim who, you know, this powerful victim who escaped and empowered herself and became a star on her own, much bigger even than she was as, as it, as Ike's, as, a, as Ike's partner. And yeah. and there was this very nineties, okay. you know, sense of triumph with Tina Turner. Like yeah. this was, she escaped and this, and now she finally soared to her, uh, to her heights, and she escaped this horrible, horrible, horrible situation. There was always that view of these abusive relationships that there was a horrible thing that had to be escaped from. And this, and this was also part of, I think, really kind of the ethos of divorce that became when it became popularized in the seventies. Um, and she yeah. kind of stood for that. <laughs> yeah. She stood for like the therapeutic. The therapeutic arc that we kind of fully embraced as women took over, I think positions of power all around, or I should say women's sensibility took over positions of power all around. I mean it became it went from being Ike as the leader of society <laughs> to Tina Turner as the leader of society <laughs> and yeah. uh, and now, and you know I, I'll never forget like it was when I first heard. I mean, I, Ike was spoken of as an absolute villain, demon, bad guy, throughout my childhood. Anywhere I heard of him referred to, it was like Ike Turner. You know, he's a bad guy. And I remember, it was so strange when the blue, the jazz and blue station locally that I listened to growing up, eighty-eight point one. They started playing his new out. Al- they put out a new album, um, or somewhere somewhere around two thousand and four or five or six. I forget what it's called. I have it. I bought it. He brought a couple new albums and they were good, as I recall. I mean, not, you know, nothing like the best work from the 60s and 70s, but it was like a good, it was good. And they were playing it. I'm like, this is weird. They're talking about Ike Turner. I think they even had him onto their annual blues festival. And I was like, this, how are they having this, this monster? Of course it would never happen today. (laughs) There was no way that he would ever be allowed on a stage today of any kind of, you know, imagine an NPR having Ike Turner in the studio today. Wouldn't happen.
1: (laughs) Terry Gross.
0: Imagine Terry Groves talking to Ike Turner. And then she asks a particularly uppity question. He just, he just like reaches out and smacks her upside the head. But <laughs> I mean, um, it's a fascinating thing to to reconsider these relationships, which are it's obviously it was a psychotically abusive relationship. But just yeah, as obviously. But kind of
1: both ways. Yeah, yeah,
0: well, I'm sure it's always both ways. That's the part that. It's always was, both ways. It's always both ways. Even when the aggressor is clearly one side it's always both ways because it's a relationship between two people who love and fuck each other all the time and also he discovered her it's not like he rode her success i mean he he was already a big no, star Mike
1: was an absolute fucking genius guy was a musical genius straight up like 100 i mean genius.
0: his productions on that are are they go, they're, they're, they're right, as you, as you write here. I'll, ri- I'll read the part where you say here, Freud believed that anger was a simple aspect of the fight-or-flight response, but what happens when anger is combined with love and artistic ambition? Fight? Flight? In Tina Turner's case, under the dictatorial and violent rule of her lover and genius producer Ike Turner, she soared. It's a horrifying notion to consider, but one has to consider the possibility that it was the explosive volatility between Ike and Tina that gave their music that extra layer of emotional heft. On songs like Poor Fool and A Fool in Love, Tina sounds like she's exoriating herself for remaining attached to this man. And, And so, yeah, I mean, there's no question about it when you listen to it now. And, you know, she bought... After she escaped him, she she had a period of really bad years. I mean, before in between her in between, I think the moment, if I remember correctly, that she started to get back on her feet is when the rolling stones brought her on tour with them to open. And I think that's when she finally started to, she sang with them a little bit and then she, she started opening for them. And that's when she finally started to get on her feet. And then in 84, I believe is when the private dancer album. Yeah. uh, That, that, and it is, it's
1: interesting. Um, you can see the transition of like the popular music industry kind of in that transition in her career. You know, when Motown dominated, pop songs were still very much about like expressing the full range of human emotion. Like it feels very much connected to the blues and all that shit. Like you're supposed to uh, express the ugliness, the beauty of everything, of humanity, but you know, post, ABBA and this isn't a knock on ABBA I fucking love them they started to learn how to engineer and to engineer kind of mass accessible perfect pop songs and she kind of fits into both sides of this industry like with Ike we get that Motown uh emotional breadth and then we get the post ABBA 80s like fucking massive banger hits um and I think there's probably a lot of, uh, you know, there's certainly there's certainly um, positives to both approaches. Uh, I think just for me personally, I'm I'm genuinely much more fascinated in the work that she created with Ike.
0: Yeah, G, G, uh, t- uh, John Waters would agree with you. I think he has a line that I'm going to flub now where he said she liked he liked Tina Turner more when she had a mustache than when she started being the queen of <laughs> France or whatever, <laughs> the queen of Monaco or whatever. Um, he, he, Yeah. I I mean, I and I was personally, I had an album of the Ike and Tina, both Soul Sisters, the album I had, the CD I had. So I would listen to that, but it was definitely the, the Tina solo stuff that like as a high, as a young boy, I, I was kind of into the most in a pop sense. I mean, you know, I think what you what you can designate between these two eras is that in the post in the Tina you know 80s-90s Tina, the songs have one emotion. Simply the best is a triumphal song, you know? Um yeah. she hate by the way, she hated what's love got to do with it. I remember her saying how much she hated that song, which was oh, her biggest hit. Yeah, um that's just like, you know, that's a catchy tune, but the the song that hit it for me was Private Dancer obviously, uh the yeah. most. But there's a lot of songs I love from from her new from her post um uh I Might Have Been Queen is a good one, but there was a there wasn't the same complexity of emotion that exists in the soul funk blues of her work with with Ike, as you say, the love and the hate. There's love, there's hate, there's sadness. They're all in, contained in one song. There's this extremely there's this like anth- uh, arena like energy that she that was needed to boost to, to to kind of develop her sound I think in the 80s and 90s because you just couldn't put out the same records anymore I mean I I, I think prob- one of the reasons their I think the movie even gets into this one of the reasons that their relationship kind of finally hit the hit the wall was that they creatively hit the wall the records weren't so, like they were he was not he was losing exactly. Ike was losing his touch. That's what they yeah, don't quite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If yeah. if I could, and, if um, I if I could become the type like started producing albums similar to what you know had developed and that you know reinvented himself, let's say in the way that Fleetwood Mac became reinvented when when um, Lindsey Buckingham. Lindsay took over. Yeah, well, if if he because that's almost in a direct parallel, right? Because Fleetwood Mac was this amazing blues band when Peter Green was on Fleetwood Mac. He's probably one of the most underrated well underrated only because he he kind of fell off the map but he's like the most one of the most incredible blues guitarists and singers of all time bb king oh, i think absolutely. said he was like one of the only guys who ever made him move blues wise a uh, white guys only one of the only white guys and and he was all he had a he had a crazy life where he like you know fell off the map drugs became an undertaker for a time or some shit and then way later uh-huh. came back as a fat old guy that uh that that didn't really have much left but uh in the 2000s but uh but that's a perfect example because Fleetwood Mac became this pop rock totally different sound with rumors yeah and like
1: with, a different band entirely
0: totally different no connection I mean as far as but I I'm
1: can... I'm really into that you know like I love like tyrannical artistic will you know like I think I kind of I have like a number of like examples of that throughout the book. I think I even it's been forever since I read it, but I think I even have uh Lindsay Buckingham in. You do.
0: There. Yeah, you have Lindsay yeah. Halfley Remack in here, um, which is a perfect I, I, and-
1: I just love the idea. Like he came into the band, um, demanded that his uh girlfriend Stevie Nicks join the band. Uh, the first record they did together, you start to hear his influence. But then by Rumors and certainly by Tusk, he's literally like Mick Fleetwood has no more like role as far as like the songwriting duties go. Like it's fully Lindsay's band. There's something so sort of powerful about that to just be so sort of uh, arrogant and full of fucking genius that you're just like, oh, fuck you, man. It's my band now. You know, we're going to blow up a studio budget and make this like strange experimental pop record called Tusk it, it, directly after we make the biggest album of all fucking time. Like, I love that shit.
0: It's it's truly you. You look at this. I, I mean, you know, I've been I'm currently balls deep in a episode about Bob Dylan, one of my who's, by the way, mm-hmm. it's birthday today, uh, that were the day we're recording May 24. Happy birthday, Bob when we
1: happy birthday
0: i'm gonna ha- i mean when we end this i'm gonna go see a double feature of don't look back and i'm not there which they're screening at the Aero theater in santa monica yeah um a big bob you know bob to me among the living he's number one um and there's no question probably of any artist of any in any genre um it's basically him and david lynch at this point for me and mm. uh i and you know he is someone who i've been as i'm examining his career I've I he's done this multiple times uh especially most notably when he became uh when he went electric which I was almost expecting to find in here like the Bob Dylan goes electric even though it's a pretty cliche thing at this point everyone knows it who knows who Bob Dylan I is I thought
1: about it I thought about it but it's uh, been done to like death been, yeah and he's been so well written about so many times um, but you know, maybe I'll do, a, I, I might do a sequel to this point and do like 200 to 400. Right. And, uh, maybe bring him up. But yeah, no, I fucking love him.
0: Did, the there's there's like
1: Bob Dylan. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, go ahead.
1: No, I mean, the thing I love about Bob Dylan is like, um, yeah, there's like three or four albums of him, of his that I adore completely, but I also love his fucking interviews You haven't seen it yet, but the movie you're about to see tonight, um, Don't Look Back, has one of the fucking absolutely greatest documentary scenes I've seen in my life, where he has this, like, snivelly Jewish journalist backstage asking just, like, cliche, retard questions, and Bob just eviscerates this guy's, like, entire self conception. Like, the guy at the end literally looked like he's mush. Like, he doesn't even know what to think. He doesn't know if anything is real. Um, like, as a public figure, you know? And I think that is something that's important. Like, the way we engage with culture, we're not just looking at the actual work. I People say this, like, separate the art from the artist. I don't believe in that shit at all even though I would never vilify someone for like behaving badly and making art, I still always think that there's an interplay or the way that we read something is through our conception of the persona. And the persona to me is just as interesting as the work is, you know?
0: Oh, certainly. Especially when the persona is itself a work of art, which it is with Bob. I mean, his persona for someone who has been as covered as productive and as in the public, like the thing about him, it's one thing to be to develop a mystique by dying at 24 like James Dean. It's another thing yeah. to to have a completely mysterious persona while also touring nonstop your entire life and putting out a thousand albums and being covered to death and having several movies made about you, and still, you have managed to. And it's not just that you play a character in the public Eye, which you do. I mean he has developed a character, but it is a char- it is it is more than that it's it's a it's a it's a historical mythological figure at this point, what Bob Dylan is. Yep. He is exactly he has become and this was driven home to me with full force when I saw him on Hollywood Boulevard, which is the basis of the episode that I'm going to release next week, mm-hmm. when he at the age of eighty one. I, this is the fifth time I'd seen him perform, and it was the best time I'd seen him perform. I mean, each time had been better than the last. His previous show was also great. This time, it was the by far the best, and it also, you know, also because I had been listening to the Rough and Rowdy Ways album that he put out right before the pandemic in typical... Uh, babonic Bobonic uh, Bobonic, uh pro- pro- prophecy timing that he's shown throughout his career he, his his uh one album came out on on 9 11 his uh a going electric came out right before the some you know like right before the 60s went Haywire and then he disappeared uh his Christian faith, his Christian uh, uh coming to Christ happened right as the 80s were about to occur like everything he's ever done has been a has 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 basically dictated American history, um, and this pro- perhaps none is none as deeply as his latest, f- possibly final act. We'll see, and and he's been doing the, the great tour based on, and he's going to be in Europe in, in in this next month. If anyone's listening in Spain and Italy and stuff, but um, yeah, it, it it was reinforced to me that oh, this man's public persona—it wasn't just about escaping. The cliches that had been affixed to him by the media, by the Mr. Joneses of the world in the 60s, which was his first kind of real motivation to become mysterious. Um, As he writes about in his book, Chronicles, like he had to get away. He had to completely pull that up from the roots, the idea that he was the, quote, toastmaster of, of any generation and and you know he sees himself clearly as this eternal folk singer. But the question is, well, what does that mean to be an eternal folk singer? And that's what he's been setting out to prove. What it does mean, um, it is it 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 might mean it might mean no less than uh, a a carrier on of the American legacy itself. And and I yeah. saw that. And you know that's something that a lot of people sleep on. When, for example, he did his Sinatra albums in the previous you know this last decade, he did a lot of. Uh, American classic American songbook albums. And you're like, why is he doing that? And then as Griel Marcus points out, and as you listen, as you, as you actually listen to it, he's point, he's proving how those songs are all folk songs and how they matter and how they were like the everyday songs of the feelings of the people who lived throughout that time and therefore can be eternalized. So to me, Bob's persona is its own work of art He's also a painter and so on and so forth, but it's like it's all been leading up to something versus nothing, and it's been and it's been something that's been a, an active persona versus one of just sort of disappearing off the map. Which I feel, I'm not as I'm not as enchanted by the like James Dean as as others appear to be. Now you have some cases here of people who died early and there and therefore, uh. Oh kind yeah, of. the
1: Cobain one.
0: The Cobain one, for example. Yeah, the Cobain uh, one.
1: Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that. I'm pretty sure Billy Kurgan was a little mad at me about that one.
0: Oh really? Explain. Um,
1: well, Billy uh, and I were talking, and he, because he, he's someone who's you know uh, had to, you know, deal with the fact that his most iconic art you know, came when he was a very young man. And um, it's not to say he's never done anything good. He's been consistently good and he's consistently following his gut, etc., etc. But when um, his record, especially Machina, came out in the year 2000, uh, there's like a Sonic Youth message board that's been around forever. And they're very horrible on there. There's like entire threads about me now. And how oh, great know, the usual shit. Why is Billy associating with the Nazi, etc. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: Nazi Jew. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. The believer. Ryan Gosling and the Believer. Yeah. Um, so Corgan, uh, they would say, I wish Billy fucking died after Melancholy came out, which is like, of course, a horrible thing to fucking say, especially about a guy you ostensibly look up to um but in the case of this kurt cobain thing i do kind of make a similar point but it's not like i'm the point i'm making and there always has to be talk about myth and building and like persona construction i don't mean any of this shit literally right what i mean was america cannibalizes symbols and icons we kind of need it as a way to tell our own cultural history that's much easier to do with kurt cobain because the guy shine so bright so fucking quick and we didn't have to see him get old he's forever immortalized in the nirvana unplugged stage where he played probably the best show of his entire life skinny smoking a cigarette strung out but still quite handsome and striking to look at um and of well, course it's a horrible thing that he died and left his daughter behind. But like, it's, that's, that's the problem with martyrdom. We require a certain kind of martyrdom from our biggest figures. And what's so uh, amazing about someone like Bill Dylan and Bowie to another extent is they evaded the martyrdom category and were able to actually stay interesting and reinvent throughout their entire careers. Um, I tried to explain this to, Billy and I think he understood like I'm not actually glad that
0: of course <laughs> like, yeah that anyone no,
1: died so young it's just it's, a point uh, about pop culture
0: yeah it's it's totally true I mean there's no, there's no doubt about it and I do think that I do think that you know in the case of Kurt Cobain it's more poignant than for I mean Kurt Cobain he actually created stuff he actually created a whole thing and then he he disappeared by death and, became, and and was martyred. It's a little different. I, I you know what I find with James Dean, the James Dean example is more of a case of passive martyrdom. The martyrdom didn't have anything to do with the art. It just happened that he died. I mean, it, it the same yeah. thing happened with Buddy Holly and with uh uh you know which who by the way Buddy Holly is like one of the Bob Dylan stories of all time is that he basically saw him. In person, right before that flight, and felt that he was passed. That something was passed on. Like he felt like that this this is a this is part of the Dylan. Like like this is true. A true story. Um, there is a difference between people who just sort of die and then their work, which wasn't necessarily that great. I mean, I, I don't. You know what? Who? What James Dean movie matters right now? Like. I don't yeah, think that, none. that none, I mean, any of it, any of it matters. There's only like yeah. what
1: two or three. Well, even but they're not that good.
0: Like it's yeah, not I that.
1: Saw, it sucks. I saw Streetcar <laughs> Named Desire, and I saw East of Eden, which isn't even one of them. Um,
0: not Streetcar. Uh, what's Kazam's it called?
1: best films.
0: Yeah, what's not? It's not. Oh, Streetcar sorry, not either.
1: Streetcar Named Desire. Rebel without a cause.
0: Rebel without a cause. Yeah, the title. Yeah. Is the important thing it's about great. that movie. Because that's, yeah, that's the title that defined the Beatnik's and defined that whole generation. Um, but it's just the title. The, the movie is really boring. Like, I, I, listen, no yeah, one cares is. more about and, the Griffiths.
1: James Dean's acting is so kind of wonky in retrospect. Like, he it's seems like great. he's doing a bad Brando impression, you know? I mean, I, I um, think he. that I movie do think also launched the career. Sorry, no, go, go ahead. ahead.
0: Go, no, I was just gonna say he's cute, no, I but I agree saying, with uh, that. But... That
1: was the first time we saw Dennis Hopper on camera too. Right. Car named Desire. He plays one of the bullies. I met his fucking daughter the other day at a barbecue.
0: Oh shit! Dennis was... Hopper's
1: daughter. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you were yeah. The saying... one he had with his last wife. Yeah.
0: Did you did you see he's any relation? Up. Did you see any relation there?
1: Kind of. Same like bright blue eyes. Um, but mate. Yeah, beyond that, I couldn't really tell.
0: The only um, trying to think. Well, I've had a few, and I've had a few grandchildren uh, encounters. I've had a few. Grand- I don't even want to say them. Uh, say I'll I'll say one of them because the other one is very active. But the other, one of them was just a stranger, stranger in the night scenario, if you know what I mean. And it was yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> it was Veronica Lake's grandson, and oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was cool, and he's everything was great except only one problem. He hadn't seen any of his grandmother's movies, when he was twenty seven. <laughs> and I'm like,
1: the, the girl hadn't watched uh, Blue Velvet. Tuck. I asked her. I was like, and she was like, no, I don't want to see my dad like that. Which I kind of got. Like, I mean, know, I sort of get it, see but your like, dad is a malevolent evil force. I've
0: had to listen to my grandparents' stories like a million times. The stories that they have about escaping their country and the war and like coming to America and when their this friend got assassinated—that I've had to listen to them a million times—and you're telling me your grandmother's Veronica Lake and your father's Dennis Hopper—and you're just not gonna watch the <laughs> fucking best, like you know, most iconic films in American history—and you're just not gonna watch them. <laughs> in know, the case of the, in I the know. case of my in the case of um Mr. Young Lake he just didn't care you know it wasn't a matter of like like Veronica Lake's movies are not in any way provocative in that you know in a it's not like you're sexualizing your grandmother she's she's in Sullivan's Travels one of my favorite movies um and yeah. and a few others it's not you know whatever it's just one of those signs of how
1: one of my uh one of my good friends Paul Gondry He's an, uh, an amazing artist, but his dad is Michelle Gondry. And uh, um, he simultaneously gets sick of like e-girl types being like, oh, my God, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. I love that movie. Yeah, but at the I same can see time. That. It's like the primary way with which he gets laid. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah,
0: you <laughs> oh. know, sometimes you got to play the hits. sometimes you got to play sometimes that's something like you know every time every now and then in bob dylan's shows he'll throw in like actually it wasn't really even the case this time but like uh that you you throw in one or two like ray charles would say that if i don't play george on my mind and i don't play what i say they're gonna throw me out the house so no matter what else i do i've got to play i got to play those two every single show so you know You got to know your audience a little bit, even while you work to subvert them, which is, I think, one of the mo- most interesting ba- battles that a huge star has. Yeah, to me, Bob Dylan and David B- Bowie um, are significant in that, in a sense, they they martyred themselves and survived it because they yeah. took control of their own martyrdom. They didn't let it just happen to them. They they were they had a hand in it. They kind of proactively martyred themselves so before Dylan could become a faded out folk singer he went electric completely alienated in a deep way and not just a like it sounds fake and gay to us that all of the hippie folky Pete Seeger types turned on him and you know well how crazy they were actually it wasn't it's not it's not crazy at all uh it, as Griel Marcus eloquently described it and I'll quote that in my episode because I don't have it in front of me right now but, you know, it was a major shock to those people because they really did, you know, view him as this messiah of, of truth, goodness, reality, you know, non-corporate, non-rat race, uh, purity. And when they saw, when they, when they heard that cacophonous, you know, poorly mixed, loud ass fucking sound coming from the stage of whatever it was that he first he first did that show where he was electric with the band they were absolutely dismayed and you can see why that he had to do that it was uh, i mean he, i think his best music was when he did that absolutely. Uh, of his life and it's
1: the entire reason that he's so much more than a folk singer you know he's the I only mean, he, folk singer to come from greenwich village who's like considered on the level of Jagger and Keith and fucking Lennon and fucking Hendrix. Like he's a rock and roll icon of the time. He's a rock and roll icon. cared the most about music.
0: Exactly. But what, 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 which, which all circles back though, at the end to him becoming an actual, uh, an actual surviving folk singer. That's the part that, that's the part that he saw that, that he saw ahead he he, he he was a head on. The fact that he became a rock star, which again, only lasted for like, you know, so many years before he fell off the map as a rock star and, and kind of became a, a pseudo nostalgia act until he rediscovered himself yet again as an old man or as an aging man in the uh, early 90s. Um, He went through all these different phases and so on, but what the the end game of it all was was that by becoming a rock star, by becoming a by going electric in the first place, just as he became, just as he put folk on the map to begin with, by by taking it to another level, by not just singing the old folk songs really, really well and in a really interesting way, but by writing his own versions of them, my own version of you, um, and writing long songs in a time when. It was gospel for a, a radio song to be three minutes, and uh, and like a Rolling Stone, it was like six minutes and something, and it kind of, and like blew everyone away when it came on. Like, what is this song that's going going on for six minutes? How long has it been going on anyway? How long? Like, let's play it again. Like, this was a complete, <laughs> this was a complete yeah. innovation. The idea of the six minute radio song that he himself he individually um, um, created. And, of course, he's taken it to the point where, to me, two of my favorite Bob Dylan songs are 16 minutes apiece. And they don't sound like 16-minute right. songs. They they sound like you could just play them on forever and you're just listening to one three-minute song. Um, Highlands, from which closes out his album Time Out of Mind, which was kind of his real third act of his life al- uh, awakening That's a album. That's
1: 97, I believe.
0: Right, 96 or 97. I think it's 97. Yeah, yeah you're right. And that was like his... That was his true "quote unquote" uh, comeback album, um, in the sense that that's kind of what defined his. That's kind of what set the uh, set the language for what he's been doing ever since. Um, and and what like without having to strain for new sounds and anything like that, you know, that's where he found himself again, re- truly. After kind of wa- after kind of wandering around for a few decade for about fifteen years, and and then the fu- the song he released on March thirty, twenty twenty, "Murder Most Foul," a song in the voice of JFK after he gets shot and before he dies. <laughs> And a song that he releases as the fucking plague sweeps the world and everything goes to shit. It's the final song of his most recent album, Rough and Rowdy Ways. He has yet to perform it. Heard this? Oh my god! Yeah. Well, and everyone, you know, I mean, all the Dylan freaks obviously got super excited. They posted their own like music videos of it on YouTube. He just released it on YouTube at first. He just like just dropped it. Site, you know, no announcement, nothing. Just dropped it, and. It's the fi- it's the final song on his album. He ha- he did not perform it in the show. He as far as I know, he has not performed it yet. It'll be very interesting to, to see what happens if he ever does perform it, and I think he probably will. Um, it's kind of it's yet another it's yet another uh, this is America song in a way, um, and it, and also the, this is Bob Dylan song and this is everything song, um, and so I you know and both of these songs Highlands which I've. Highlands I've listened to, God knows how many hours of Highlands I've listened to. Uh, it's, like, so close to home that it's it's crazy. Um, but they both feel, like, you, you put these on and time stops, you know, they're 16, 17-minute songs. Similarly, you put on a three, two-minute song like Subterranean Homesick Blues, it feels like you just listen to amazing. an epic. Yeah, you just listen to a fucking yeah. two-hour movie or something. With yeah, it, it, it feels like you just watched song. a... That's the song that James the James Dean myth is basically a subterranean homesick blues. That's the rebel without a cause song. Uh, that's yeah. where it become it found its art artistic expression.
1: How do in. you rate Blood on the Tracks? You know that's one of those albums
0: that every uh, I've often heard people say is their favorite. I don't think it's his yeah, best. I love it. You love yeah. A lot of people think it's. I think it's, a, it's I think It's not that's, my favorite. Uh, yeah, um, a lot of people say it's their favorite. I think that's a straight guy album. That's the album where, like, kind of like Michael Mann's Heat. It's like a straight, straight or Cormac straight, McCarthy or Cormac McCarthy straight. Now there's some like songs. I'd like to talk to
1: I, you about Cormac Apple.
0: Oh, I'd love to, even though I, you know, yeah, I've been kind of being, I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been making bitchy comments about Cormac McCarthy. Listen, we're gonna, if you're yeah, listening yeah. now, after after the paywall, after we go to the paywall, we're gonna talk about uh, Adams potentially a vibe shift era defining new book deal we're going to talk about yeah. the ghost story in your in 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 the conceptual manifesto how you want your your experience with a ghost which I want to talk oh, about yeah. because I know a lot of people <laughs> very close to me who strongly believe that in ghosts. And, or that, that ghosts are real. We're going to talk about that. So I'm just teasing that for, for those of you who, who might be interested, that'll be on the other side of the paywall. Um, but yeah, uh, Blood on the Tracks is, I like him. I mean, listen, I like, I love, I like, I think it's a great album by any stand, any objective standard. It's not my favorite Bob Dylan album. It might be the album that he refers to as being about a bunch of Chekhov stories, in his in Chronicles, yeah. he talks about how he put out an album that was all Chekhov stories, and people thought it was autobiographical, and I think that's got to be the album. I don't know what else it could be <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from the 70s, um, you know? Well,
1: you know what I really love about Blood on the Tracks besides the Chekhov thing, which I think is fascinating and I didn't even know? I'm just guessing um, that's the one, yeah. Yeah, but I think Blood on the Tracks comes out at a very interesting moment because the energy of rock and roll was shifting like what the velvet underground and the stooges had created in 1967 to 1970 which only like a hundred people at the time knew about those guys were starting to come of age so modern lovers fucking the ramones were getting together lester bangs at cream magazine was covering this stuff and Bob Dylan is old at this point and it's like, where does he fall down? Is he just like this industry Titan? But I think blood on the track solidifies the fact that Bob Dylan is always on the side of the real, like he is every bit, you know, it, 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 that kind of success while being so authentic is not possible anymore. You know, like what he did going electric, You know, people talk about uh, Metal Machine music with Lou Reed, right? And uh, I love Lou, and I love that record. But he got so much credit for, you know, because he kind of wrote these big pop songs. Um, You know, Sally Can't Dance came out, Berlin came out. There's great songs on those, but it's different. It's not the Velvet Underground. That that white noise that we associate with uh, Lou Reed was gone. So... He, you know, gets fucked up on speed. He cranks in three different amplifiers and just starts blasting noise and creates basically the first harsh noise album ever, even though it doesn't really sound like harsh noise anymore. It sounds more like beautiful, ambient white sound. And he's like celebrated as a conceptual god, at least like with people that I know. But it's the exact same fucking thing that Dylan did going electric. It's literally the same concept like (laughs) go electric do something fucked up freak out old head fans gain some new supporters um like it's it's the exact same thing it's kind of like dylan started this thing that just works endlessly like alienate in the moment become a legend in history and um and like i don't see like he's got yeah go ahead
0: i'm no it's the thing and the trick is it's 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 easy to alienate it's easier to alienate than it is to alienate with something that's also great. And I think that's what, I think that's the principle that we're all kind of trying to grasp here or the, the, the magic that we're all trying to grasp because we're all in a, you know, I mean, when I say we, I'm talking about you and me and everyone who has been operating on the, uh, on the outskirts of the respectable institutional world of, Art and entertainment, because our sense of the truth is so is is, is viewed to be so hostile by them, even when yeah. it's not being expressed explicitly. They can sense it. They can smell it because at this point it's reached a point where just you know, by virtue of not being a certain skin color, it, you're a, you're a hostile imposition to the institution. Yeah, it's gotten to such yeah. a decay. De- you know, such a decadent. State that it's like, it's, it's like a, a senile old fucking, uh, geriatric, uh, creature that sees a color and starts shrieking and sees a penis and starts shrieking. And so it's become super in a way it's become easy to alienate, to transgress because all you have to be is a certain color. That's why we see all these fake ass mediocrities, Trying to swoop in and kind of consolidate, uh, consolidate di- quote unquote dissidents, their dissident reputation, their, their sort of dissident positions, um, but but in a very milquetoast, mediocre, uncreative, unartistic way.
1: Oh, yeah, because the they have the hustle. Fucking...
0: Yeah, I mean, we know we've been we've named them all, but they don't even deserve to be named. Um, because the point is we don't, we don't, they're not doing anything except kind of just trying to institutionalize dissidents in a boring ass way. And I believe in, I mean, I think it's important to build entities and to build counter institutions. I, I do think that, you know, people need support and that's why I'm so excited about your book deal. People need serious support and we need, and people need serious, uh, kind of community behind them. It's not irrelevant you know, it's not irrelevant that Bob Dylan had somewhere to go in New York City when he got there as a from from Dinky Town on the bus. Like he needed those Greenwich Village alleys with the with the shitty little clubs where there was a lot of horrible things happening, but also a lot of action and stages well, for him I, to perform.
1: I, yeah. I always, you know, it always makes sense to me that Warhol found someone like Bob Dylan so fascinating that he found Bowie so fascinating because a lot of these guys, like these guys who knew how to play with Persona, public presentation with myth, they were, you know, they were following the guidelines set forth during like GATA and conceptual art in a lot of ways, even if not conscious, but that's basically what it is like. You know, Duchamp is this widely fucking celebrated painter, formerly beautiful, elegant paintings. And then he has a gallery show coming up. All he wants to do is play chess. He hates fucking art at this point. So he just takes a fucking toilet and puts it in the goddamn gallery and says, all right, this is art. Pisses off everybody. But what it does, it creates a fault line. It creates a then and before, you know, um, a, a central moment of fascination that sort of binds together the whole myth. Uh, that's Dylan going electric. That's Lou Reed fucking Metal Machine Music. That is um, David Bowie deciding to reinvent Iggy Pop's career after the Stooges fanned out and he was a junkie. Um, <laughs> in a much more low IQ way, that's Kanye going anti-Semite, right? Oh, like, yeah, of course. It's Yeah, it's like you... You, you can't just alienate the haters all the time. You know, you some there is a time that comes when you decide I have to um, create a new challenge for my own audience, and whoever comes out the other side, that's the real heads.
0: Right. It's the yeah. Exactly. That's well. That's very well put. It's the how you have to create a new challenge for your own audience and um, for your, you know, kind of it should say for your for your current audience, because once you create that new challenge, you never know who's going to make it out on the other side. But also, as we see from Bob Dylan, his new challenge when he went, you know, when he when he was drifting through, uh, hustling through the uh, Greenwich coffee houses in the early 60s, Seeing all these, you know, quite impressive. It's a very familiar. It's so familiar to read about that life. By the way, it feels so. It feels like a real life version. Not to, you know, not to uh, sound, not to sound grandiose, but it really does feel like a real life version of what we've been doing in a in the digital sphere, in a sense, in terms of this, like, oh yeah, little dinky. Uh, dingy uh, side alley, dark alley kind of environment where nevertheless, there are interesting people doing interesting and highly idiosyncratic things. You know, there's also a lot of phonies and there's also a lot of blowhards and there's also a lot of kind of one trick ponies and a lot of uh, uh, one dimensional types, a lot of crazy, a lot of sheer ass crazy people. It's all there. Like you just read in in Chronicles, uh, you know, there are people waltzing in doing spoken word fucking acts that are pretending to be like uh you know fucking Bill, uh, Buffalo Bill and shit there's all kinds of wild characters <laughs> i mean yeah uh you know good and bad there's like like all all across the map he it, it, there's so many there's so many spirits that 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 pass through uh, the, uh those those clubs in his in his telling and i believe every word of it and i'm sure you know there's a level of excitement when it's in real life and when you're going out and when you're when your your life itself is 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 precious because you're you don't have anything to to fall back on um and you and you have nothing and you know your only hope is to is the is is basically uh uh some uh the applause and some smiles and recognition from this these random little crowds and and people who are also kind of the impresarios of these spaces um it's very familiar and the thing that bob dylan did by challenging that audience the way he did, by by I mean he first got noticed at, by singing the by singing Woody folk songs. He got noticed by John Hammond. Now, do we have any modern day John Hammonds? I don't see them if I if they exist. I don't see a John Hammond in Columbia Records, uh, discovering with the with the zeal and passion of a true believer in the arts a true believer in the individual, like discovering everyone from fucking Robert Johnson in the thirties to, uh, Bob Dylan to, and everyone in between I mean, the, the list, you know, the names of Duke Ellington, they're the names of John Hammond is one of the most significant people in the world to me, in American history to me. And it's, and it's sort of this symbolic. He was a producer at Columbia records who discovered an incredible roster of talent and signed them to Columbia records. That's the point, you know, um, I don't see anything like that among the corporate, the corporate no. headhunter, uh, I just I have in any field, forget, it's not just music. I'm talking about literature. I'm talking about yeah.
1: even, you to know, the extent that journalism, it happens, it happens on such like a micro like level that it almost doesn't happen at all, you know?
0: Right. Um, it's a, it is a micro level. Yeah. It's like, basically you, you found it. The only person who does, who does that is someone who starts his own press. Or his own thing and tries like, I mean, you know, I, I fancy myself and I'm sure you fancy yourself uh, to be operating in the same spirit every time you meet somebody that you want to promote because you think that here's a individual who has something and I want to do what I can because no one else is going to do it. (laughs) No one else is going to fucking, no one else is out there, you know?
1: No, So that's like the thing that I'm most thankful for is the fact that I can, you know, um, I'm in a position now to give some attention to my friends. And like, yeah, honestly, like um, I got fucking uh, some sniveling leftoid that I stupidly uh, responded to instead of swatted away like an ant, like I usually do. Um, Tried to like do a gotcha question about how I don't know what the avant-garde means because the avant-garde is a late 19th century French uh, bourgeois revolutionary movement. So he's, like, using the technical, like, origin of the terminology to say, I'm like, dude, that's not what people fucking mean when they say something is avant-garde. They just mean it's fucking new or against the grain. Like, it doesn't, like, you know, uh, the whole 20th century avant-garde kind of loses its political basis. There's people in it that are, come from uh, both sides of the aisle, right? So whatever, it doesn't matter. But I think there is sort of a sense of avant-gardeism to what we've created um and i think the proof of that is how enraging people get uh at us but also even more than that i've you know we've become legitimate friends and i've made lots of fucking friends throughout these years you know and that kind of makes the whole uh war side of this much easier because if a bunch of people are shitting on you but you're in an elite clique that they have no access to it's still uh, hard to not feel smug in the face of such sniveling little fucking babies.
0: Yeah, it's 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 well, you know what it is is, and of course, it can always become as the as the Dylan thing. I keep circling back to the Dylan example. It can always become a complacent kind of uh, echo chamber. Anything can become a complacent yeah. echo chamber. But it is important always to have comrades in battle and to know that you know no matter how. Venomous, the opposition to you is, and cruel, and 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 completely above all, cruel and venomous to me are not the problem. I've never had a problem with cruel and venomous personally. Possibly because I've just been dealing with this for the longest time, um, right, right? And 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 including at a, a national ethno level with the Armenia shit, uh, right? Uh, to me, what what's the most maddening is the incomprehending part, the part where, yeah you know, you'll be treated by, by one particular secret, secret agent of chaos as some sort of political person, you know, like a, like some sort of, uh, representative of some sort of political position or party, which is the most, which is like, it's like calling me a, you know, moneylender money lender or something. Like it's, it's, it's as, it's as, uh, uh, bigoted as it could possibly get, because it's just nothing to do with what I'm doing. It's just like treating right. treating me as like something that I'm completely not even. So that's where I get that. That's what basically institutional uh, 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 bias does to people. It it you know it takes an artist and tarnishes them as alt right or as whatever you know something like it'll just just smatters this label on them. That's like the equivalent of. Of, of a cancer warning um, on a product that no one's even addicted to yet. So it's like, you know, why are they going to even put it in their mouth? Um, and so, but but the challenge that I find, the challenge that I find to be pressing upon us all right now, because, you know, in the last year, and I've been keeping tabs on this and chronicling it in motion and, I, and, and being part of it, but in the last year we've seen, okay, people finally get out of their fucking houses. People finally meet each other uh at least in some cities we've met each other many times we've hung out we've we've created bonds and friendships we've we've uh there is like a regular scene now in new york of you guys partying doing readings trying out different uh, steroids and (laughs) diet pills going off cycle yeah. on cycle changing genders together going to checking into the psychiatric wards <laughs> together uh going yeah. to weddings getting married uh having drinks g- g- going to you know uh uh going to see Roger Stone and 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 try to trap him with a and anyway there's all these things that are happening and so and which is good cuz you need like life you need the, the wheels to be turning and you need life to be happening and now the question is uh is this just going to become a, a, you know, a kind of real life version of the online ghetto that we've been in the previous several years, or can it transcend that the way Bob Dylan transcended Greenwich Village, and what Bob what Bob Dylan did when when he when he created his own folk songs and not just sang the uh, existing ones, which is no small thing, by the way, to sing the existing ones perfectly, you know, in a great way. But to, when he created his own, he he burst through, he challenged his own audience and he created a whole new, much larger audience, the size of the world. Um, and he yeah. did that again and again and again throughout his career. Um, and that's the question, like when you do challenge your audience and you do it with something that has genuine a genuine uh, substance to it. You don't know. You never know what you, the, the sky is the limit because you just don't know. It's a brand new thing, and all the kind of barriers that you're used to recognizing no longer matter. So yeah. I. That's why I view Dylan just to kind of you know wrap him up. I view him as this. He saved folk music by by transcending it and by turning it into rock and by then turning it into whatever he turned it into folk in his. Again. Yeah, yeah, folk again, folk, everything, basically, all together. Like, he saved it because Pete's. you're not listening to, like, Pete Seeger's not re- reach Woody Guthrie is not reaching people my age. Pete Seeger's not reaching people my age. Bob Dylan did reach people my age. Now, whether he can reach Zoom or oh, anyone b- younger is a different question because they're just, they're checked out. But that's a different, that's a different <laughs> topic altogether. But, like, he fucking saved folk music by making it rock. Um, and that's why he's Bob Dylan. Um, and, and, uh, so, you know, my focus now is like, what can we do habitually, um, in terms of discipline, in terms of creative, uh, instinct and in terms of, you know, help, uh, in terms of kind of helping each other out in every other way to actually create and to lo- like something out of Whatever this uh, weird cultural intermission ghetto has is, um, and you seem to have really struck a new. You seem to be really striking a, a kind of like a, a blazing a trail on that with your fiction. So when I come back, yeah. I'm going to take a quick break. Yep. We're going to let the freeloaders yep. go restroom. home. Yeah, use the restroom. <laughs> a flex in the mirror. Uh, show yes. off your guns. Pose down. Hose, yeah, exactly, and we'll come back for the second half. And that is all for the free public portion of the show. To listen to the second hour, where we get into Adam's path-breaking book deal and his encounter with an actual ghost, and many other topics. Please subscribe patreon.com slash filthy armenian for as little as five dollars support the show avail yourself of the entire filthy armenian adventure catalog the full twisted adventure be a mensch thank you for listening and see you on the other side of the paywall while
1: the men come in these places in the middle, all the same You don't look at their faces And you don't ask their names You don't think of them as human You don't think of them at all You keep your mind on the money Keeping your eyes on the wall And your private for money, do what you want me to do. I'm your private dancer, a dancer for money.